pray these things in Jesus' name. sang the song, Our God, and one of the lines in that song is, uh, and if our God is for us, then who can ever stop us, and if our God is with us, then who can stand against us? We sing that a lot. We, we, we quote that. That comes from Romans 8.31. I don't know if you know that. Romans 8.31 says, and if our God is for us, then who can be against us, or who can stand against us? And uh, it's interesting that we sang that song tonight. Um, I don't know if you've ever, like, ask the question, but or, or even notice that that statement is made in the form of a question in Scripture. Um, and and in, in the form of the question in Scripture, the, I mean, it's, 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 it's not really asking, it's, it's using a question for the purpose of, like, proving a point, but the reality is it's still formed in a question. And the very first word is what? If. And I wonder if you've ever asked or, or thought, okay, so what if he's not for us? Or what if he's against us? Or what if he does stand opposed to us? I'll tell you this, if, if, if he stands against us, then the opposite of what we're singing and saying is true. And that is, if he does stand against us, then we stand no chance against him. We're in trouble. And I think this is a very significant question to ask as we're praying. One of our big prayers is we want to be a ministry that makes a significant impact here in Denton and throughout the world. And so if we're going to make a significant impact, we know it goes without saying that God has to be on our side. Like God has to be the one working through this ministry. It's not going to be due to the work of our hands. It's going to be due to the work of him and his spirit. And so I think we have to ask the question, okay, is God really for us? And I think we're going to actually answer that question tonight. Um, and let me just say this, just, just the fact that like you've heard that scripture before, just the fact that you, you sang it over and over just then, some of you very loudly, you know, and passionately, just the fact that you know that does not necessarily mean that it's actually true for you. Now, it's a true statement. If God is for you, then nobody can stand against you. But really the question is, is God for you? That's, that's where I want to leave you with. And that's what's going to kind of project us into where we go from here. Now, before we do anything else, I really want us to do this tonight. I want us to take a minute. I know we've already prayed. Um, I know breaking the, the, uh, the schedule here is against the rules. But um, I want us to pray again. And here's what I really want us to do, want you to do is, um, I want to give you a second to just pray where you are. Now, if this is your first time, don't, don't worry. Like, pray quietly. Everybody's praying quietly. Nobody's praying out loud. Um, just where you're sitting, um, you can just bow your head, close your eyes, however you want to do it, and, and just pray. And here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray that tonight as we dig into, into the Word, um, that, man, that God would allow you and me to have a very honest perspective of where we are. Very honest perspective. And pray that God will allow you to be honest with yourself. So I'm going to give you a minute to do that, and then, and then I'm gonna, I'll pray, and then we'll dig in.
Father, we thank you for this evening, and we just we do ask that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, Lord. I pray that by your spirit, um, you would reveal some things in our hearts tonight. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would guard this room from distractions and guard our minds and hearts from distractions. And I pray that nothing would get in the way of your word being spoken very clearly tonight. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open to James chapter 4. We're starting chapter 4. Eight weeks in, and we're finally in chapter 4. That's a good thing. And so we're just going to go right to the text, all right? Chapter 4, verse 1. James begins by asking a question. And here's the question he asks. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? All right, now, now hear what he's saying here. He asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, this question should bother you, okay? Now, our first week of this study in James, we, we spent a little time looking at who these people were that James is writing to. We, we, we saw really only one aspect of them, and that aspect was we saw Acts chapter 8. This, this group that James is writing to used to be part of the original first church in Jerusalem, okay? So Acts chapter 8, what happens is as the church begins to grow and, and build and all these good things start happening, all of a sudden persecution hits, and when persecution hits, they actually see one of their top dog leaders, Stephen, get killed. And when he gets killed, what do the people do? I mean, they, they scatter. And so James introduces, the, introduces this letter, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, to all the Jewish Christians scattered among the nations. These are the people that scattered from Acts chapter 8. So we know that these people were part of that early church, that first church, which means that everything before Acts chapter 8 pretty much tells the history, the beginnings of these people that we're reading about or that James is writing to here in James. And so when he says or he asks this question, what causes all these fights and all these quarrels among you, you and I ought to be bothered by that question if we're familiar at all with the beginning of Acts. Because when we look at the beginning of Acts and see what these people used to be like when they first formed this church, when they first developed this community of believers in Christ, it was completely different. If you were to look at Acts chapter 2, verse, uh, beginning verse 44, listen to, listen to how Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, Listen to how he describes these people, these same people that James is writing to. He says this, all the believers, all these people James is writing to, all of them were together. And they had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, uh, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then if you were to flip forward to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers were unified in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything that they had. There were no needy persons among them. For, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. So in other words, from time to time, people who had a bunch of stuff, they sold it. Why? Well, then they would, it says that they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet or the leaders' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So here's the words that describe these people like early on, okay? A few years before James is writing this letter. The words used to describe these people were they were all together, they had everything in common, they sold their stuff and they gave it to each other. Every day they met together, they ate together. You're seeing this common word here, this common theme, common, common, together, unified, one. They ate together, tells how, what their hearts were like. They were glad and they were sincere in their hearts. They were all one or unified in mind and heart. They shared everything that they had. This was a really tight-knit community. Like, this was a community that, that really loved each other. A very special community. But then, you get to James chapter 4, verse 1. Just a few years later, and James is asking this question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He uses two words, really, to describe these people. Fights and quarrels. 
What causes these fights and quarrels among you? That's what's happening among these people now. Now, just a little bit of info on, on really what he's saying here, like fights and quarrels. That sounds like something I could say about, you know, my sister when we were kids, like we fought with each other, we quarreled or argued with each other. But that's not really the type of word that he's using here. If you really look at the word he's using, we translate it to say fight, or that's what the NIV translates it as. But that's the same word. You look at other places in the NIV where this word is used, it's not translated that way. It's translated to say war or battle or conflict. So like you could describe what's happening in Libya right now with this word fight. This isn't an argument or a slap fest even. It's like all out battle. And then the next word quarrel. Other places it's translated to say combat. And specifically combat where you put on your fatigues, you put on your body armor and you go to war, you go to battle, you have combat. Some friction there. That's how he describes this community. I mean, it's, we hear fights and quarrels, but in reality, it's like all-out dagger war and, you know, suit-up combat. It's the difference between, like, an argument on Dr. Phil's show and an argument on Jerry Springer where, you know, everything is just flying everywhere. Or it's the difference between, like, Olympic wrestling where there's actually rules and a point system and then, like, WWE cage match where you've got chairs and tables and anything and everything is on limits. Nothing's off limits. Like, he's using some very serious words here. And he's using them really to make a point. He's, he's, we don't have really any reason to believe that they had gotten to a place where they were physically hurting each other or actually killing each other. Later on, he uses the word, he says, you kill and you covet. I don't think, and, and nobody really thinks that these people were actually to the place of killing each other. But we do need to see that these fights that were being fought were absolutely tearing this community of believers apart. I mean, this church was being torn apart by this stuff. There's some serious issues. Now, before we go anywhere else, I just want to say this. Like, I think this operates, I think we see this really on two levels in this room right here. One, we see it in the individual to individual. And, and I mean, just real briefly, like, here's kind of what I mean by that. We, we talked a little bit last week about words and how words are powerful and words can be powerfully destructive. One of the ways we see these fights and these quarrels among, you know, us and in this group is words. I mean, we, we kill each other with words. We, you know, it's like Mario and fireballs. We shoot fireballs at each other with words, you know. I mean, it, and it hurts. Um, we're very territorial. So when people get close to our stuff, man, we go crazy, you know. We enter defensive mode. I mean, there, there's, I don't know, there's a lot of things we could talk about there. But, but really, the other way, see it individual to individual, but the other way that I, th I think we see this fighting and this quarreling at work, and this is the one I'm definitely more concerned about, is group to group. So we have this group in here, and then there's other groups of believers out there. And so like, the fighting and the quarreling comes in when it's like, oh, my college ministry is better than your college ministry, or my church is better than your church, or my pastor, he's cooler than your pastor, he's a better teacher than your pastor, he's my pastor teaches expository, expositorially. Your pastor doesn't, and expositorially is the only right way. Or, or my pastor leads us, or our, our church is the only, is the church that's really only doing it the right way, or the, 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 one, the only one doing it the right way. That's what I'm trying to say. Or, or our church has this theology, which is better than your theology. Or, or we do life groups, y'all do home groups. You do missional community, we do gospel community, or whatever. You know, there's all these little things, and we, you know, we think we've got the best. They think they have the best. Obviously, they're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, we, you know, so there's this friction that comes from this stuff. And there's this quarreling. There's this fighting. We're more missional or mission-minded than your group. We've got it. Y'all don't. Or crew is better than navigators. Or overflow is better than this or that. I mean, you see the gist that I'm getting at. 
And though we haven't gotten to a place where we've drawn swords and we're like physically fighting, though history does show that that's eventually where it typically leads with Christians. We haven't gotten there yet. The fight between us is, is a serious issue. These, these, these quarrels, these fights, the fighting, they are serious issues and they are tearing us apart, literally. And so, I mean, you got to ask, like, what's, what's happening? Why is this happening? And, and where's the problem? If you go back to James and the people that he's writing to here, the church community that James is writing to, you got to ask, okay, so what happened? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, you see this passionate love for each other. I mean, people were selling their possessions to help each other out. I mean, that's, that's radical love. And then, you know, they're, they're spending time together almost every day, eating together, hanging out together, loving each other sharing stuff with each other, worshiping, I mean, all these things. They have this tight-knit community, but then in James, even before chapter 4, you see chapter 2, they were discriminating against each other. And then you get to chapter 3, and you see these fireballs of words that they're tearing each other apart with. And then later in chapter 3, it talks about how bitter, uh, bitter envy and selfish ambition was just spreading through the church like a wildfire. Wild, wildfire. And then you get to chapter 4, and he's talking about these fights, these quarrels, all this stuff. So what happened? So James goes on, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he asks another question. He says, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Now, this huge change, it really centers around one word we see in those three verses it's translated twice two different ways it's the word that's translated in in verse two or verse one is desires and it's the word in verse three that's translated as pleasures it's the same word it's hedone in greek it's where we get our our word hedonism or hedonist from a hedonist is somebody who seeks pleasure like that's their profession they're really good at seeking pleasure so if you are a hedonist that's like the only thing that's on your mind is I just seeking, seeking pleasure. And I want to show you another place in Scripture where we see this word and how it's used because it's going to give us, I think, a lot of insight into what was causing all this stuff in the community that James is writing to here. If you flip over to Luke chapter 8, and go ahead and flip there because we're going to be there for a second. If you flip to Luke chapter 8, you come up on a scenario where Jesus is about to start telling one of his parables, one of his stories. In Luke chapter 8, verse 4, Look what happens. It says, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. So here's the setting, okay? Jesus is, he's here in this place, all right? He's about to start telling this story. And it says that large crowds are gathering. But really, it goes even further and says there's people from like different towns around that are just coming from town after town after town. People are coming to see this. They're coming to hear this guy. Now, just get an image for this, and I think you can get an image for this. We are living in, like, mega church era, mega gathering era. We just had passion down in Fort Worth, and, I mean, this is such a perfect example, I mean, of, of almost what's happening here, because here's Jesus, and he's obviously this well-known communicator, and he's about, to, he's about to speak, and all these people from all these different towns come and gather. That's exactly what just happened in Fort Worth. So all these people come and gather, just to hear this one guy speak, and, and then he tells this story, and here's the gist of the story. You've heard the story before. He starts to talk about this farmer, and this farmer, he takes some seed, and he throws it out. He spreads the seed, and the seed falls in four different places. One, it falls over here on the path. One, it falls on the rock. Some falls uh, among thorns, and some falls on what he calls good soil, and look at what he says about the good soil. The good soil, verse 8, 
He says, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, or it grew, the, the, the crop grew, and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. So this seed that fell on the good soil, it grew up, and it yielded this massively awesome crop. But after telling the parable, later on he's with his disciples, Jesus is. And his disciples are like, dude, what the heck were you talking about over there with this farmer and the seed and all that? Because obviously you're not just trying to, I mean, we, they knew that, obviously. These, these people lived in an agricultural society. They know you don't just throw seed on the path, throw it on rocks. I mean, they know you don't do that. And so they're asking, what was the point of that story? And Jesus begins to explain. He explains about the, the seed that fell on the path. He explains about the seed that fell on the rocks. And he explains about the seed that fell on the good soil. But listen to what he says about the seed that falls among the thorns. Verse 11. First, he says this. He says, this is the meaning. Verse 11, he says, this is the meaning of the parable. And he tells you what the seed is. So the seed is the word of God. Okay, so the image here is this. You've got somebody, this farmer, who's taking God's word and he's proclaiming God's word. He's speaking God's word. He's telling you what God has said. And then after he does that, he explains he explains, okay, falls in, in, in four different ways. And one of those, verse 14, is the seed that fell among thorns. He says, the seed that fell among thorns stands for, or is, those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. So here you have these people that come to hear this man speak, proclaim God's word, and one group among those people, when they hear it, he says, first of all, they do hear it. And I would imagine that as they hear it, they, at least in that moment, sincerely take it in. And maybe even, it, it, it might even tug at their emotions to some extent, because God's word is powerful. And God's word does evoke emotion, does make you think. So they take in, they hear God's word. But the growth that normally comes from hearing God's word, or the typical response, or the appropriate response that comes after you hear God's word, never happens. Because as soon as they get up and they leave, wherever that man, in this case Jesus, was proclaiming God's word, is they get choked by life's, by life's worries, by life's riches, and by life's pleasures. That's what Jesus said. Now, has anyone in here ever, like, legitimately choked before? Like, when I say legitimate, legitimate, legitimately choked, I mean... Like Heimlich Maneuver? Any, yeah? Okay. I want to talk to you after this. That would be a good story. I've never, like, legitimately choked. Now, I've, I've been, actually went on this date to this Italian restaurant one time, and, you know, you got you, spaghetti. It's, it's, it's a romantic, you know? So you get spaghetti, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's a romantic. And um, I don't know where that came from. And so I'm eating the spaghetti, and you know how spaghetti is. Sometimes it gets lodged, like, in the halfway point. Like, part of it's in your mouth, part of it's in your throat. Terrible thing to happen, especially on a date. So I'm, like, <laughs> you know, choking <laughs> hawking this noodle up on, uh, on this date that was supposed to be, like, good. It turned out not so good. But other than that, I've never, like, really choked. But if you've ever seen somebody or seen something <clears throat> choke, it's kind of terrifying. I, I've told you all about my, my miniature poodle. His name's Lloyd. Uh, he has a young, well, he had a younger brother. Uh, his name uh, is, is, or was Derby. And, uh, and sometime Lloyd and Derby would have sleepovers at my family's house um, when I was in high school. And and, um, and, you know, they're crazy. They, when they get together, they're, they're, they're bros. And so they run around, they have a good time together. But one of the things that they would do is we'd get them together and we'd, we'd give them uh, both these little, I don't know how to describe them, these little rawhide stick bones, really skinny little stick bones. And they were very aggressive with each other. And so they, 
the other stick bone always looked better than the one that we gave them, even though they were the exact same thing. And so we would give at the same time, we'd get Lloyd over here, get Derby over here, and we'd give them their stick bones, and immediately it's like epic battle in the middle for both stick bones. And so what typically, or what began to happen is, is they're fighting over these stick bones, they would, they would take them, instead of chewing them up, they'd try and break them into a piece and then just swallow it whole. And, and so one time, Derby, who's like half the size of my dog Lloyd, he's a Wadlow, size runs in the family, and he takes... Lloyd's bone, and he tries to just swallow the whole thing at once. I mean, he's, he's a dog like this big, okay? The rawhide's like half the size of his body. And he tries to swallow it all at once, and he starts to choke. We didn't know what had happened. He starts kind of with his cute little paw, you know, it's kind of cute watching him, but he, uh, he's like, you know, scratching his throat, and we're like, what, what is Derby doing? Is he like having a seizure or something? And, and but we walk over and realize he's choking, so my dad grabs him, and he's, you know, shaking him and hitting, you know, hitting him on the stomach, and it, this bone doesn't come out, so eventually, you know, he just sticks his finger down his throat and pulls the bone out, and I mean, it was, it was, honestly, it was very terrifying to see, you know, my dog's brother almost choke to death on, a, on my dog's bone. Um, that's terrifying, but I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, somebody actually uh, being choked. Now, difference here, what I'm saying, like, one is choking on something, one is actually physically being choked. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody or something being choked. Um, that is maybe not so much terrifying, it's more so gruesome. Um, when I was in Lubbock, uh, my, my office there was in this, in this house apart from the church. Our college ministry offices were. And, uh, and for about a month, about every day I'd walk in, and there would be little poop droplets on my floor. And, and naturally, when you see on a regular basis somebody has pooped on your floor, uh, there's a couple things you begin to think. One is, okay, somebody has a personal vendetta against me. Uh, and two is, whoever that person is, there's some serious revenge in order for this person because they pooped on my floor like every day for the past month. Uh, so one day I'm sitting at my, my, my desk, and as I'm sitting at my desk, I see out of the corridor of my eye something begin to walk up to my foot. And I thought it was a roach, so I kind of, you know, back up. I'm a man, so I didn't freak out or nothing. <sighs> so I see this thing kind of walk up to my foot, and I look down, and, and I've actually got a picture of it. Uh, Okay, it's blurry. I, I, I had my phone, okay? Now, I, I pulled out my little brickberry here, and I, and, I, and I took my phone, and I took a picture. It was a little mouse, and you can actually see up above it, you can see the little poop droplets. And immediately I knew this was the evil culprit that's been, you know, with his personal vendetta pooping on my floor every day for the past month. So I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, now I'm wearing sandals, okay, chacos, so open-toed shoes, and it's right by my foot. Um, and so I'm thinking, all right, well, revenge time. And so I, I start to, with my foot, to go step on it. And right before I step on it, it kind of darts out of the way. So I get out of my chair, and I chase that sucker down. And long story short, I got him pinned up against the wall with my foot. And so I'm holding him there, and it was, it was, it was actually pretty terrible. Uh, because I, I've got him pinned against the wall, and he's, he's kind of upside down just looking at me. And you could just watch him. like He's, he's breathing really fast, breathing really fast, and it just, it just kind of gets a little... A little slower, a little slower, a little slower, and then it just stops. And then some blood starts kind of running out of his nose. Um, I mean, he literally choked to death. And you know how when you catch a fish, you take a trophy picture? Well. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Now, all humor set aside, this is the image that <laughs> raised the roof, baby. <laughs> all humor set aside, this is, the, this is such a, a 
perfect image of what Christ is trying to portray here when he talks about the seed that falls among the thorns. First of all, think about this. Chapter 8, verse 4 of Luke, he says, or it, it says there's this large crowd following Jesus. Well, that means there's this large crowd of people from all these different towns that heard the gospel. That they, I mean, they ended up hearing Jesus' Jesus's words. But when it came down to it, only a few really responded. And we know that because, I mean, even though a lot of them said that they believed, when it came to the end of Christ's life, there weren't many that were still there following him. I mean, you read the story, the crowds disappear very quickly. And think about this, too. He, he says, okay, when somebody proclaims God's word, there's, there's four things that can happen. So there's like 25% chance that one of these things is going to happen, even in a setting like this. Some's going to fall on the path. The word's going to get trampled, never even make it to their heart, barely their mind. Some of it's going to fall on rocks, and the rocks represent the plant that has no roots, and so the wind comes by. If you've ever lived in West Texas, there's tumbleweeds everywhere. Those are perfect examples of what God's trying, or Jesus is trying to explain in this parable with this seed that falls on the rock. No root, so it blows right away. And then you got the seed that falls among thorns, and it gets choked, which we're going to talk about right here in a second. Then the seed that actually falls on good soil. 25% chance, even as Jesus is talking, that when the word is proclaimed, that it's actually going to stick and be retained and turn into a crop. So now you think about these other big mega gatherings that we have, where maybe it's John Piper or Francis Chan. Those guys are good communicators, but they got nothing on Jesus. And so if Jesus, the best shot he had was 25% chance, then you can imagine the percentage of what is actually going to stick in these other settings. And so Jesus says, okay, 25% chance, these are the things that are going to happen. And, and then he, he, he shows that one of those, they're going to get choked out. They're, they're going to get choked out by, the, by, by life's pleasures, by life's worries, by life's riches. And I mean, some of those worries being like, I need a job, or I need to pass my classes, or I need a wife, or I need a husband, or I need a boyfriend, girlfriend. Some of the, the riches being not just money, but I, I want money. I want success. I want power. I want fame. I want to be awesome. I want to be great. And then the pleasures being, I mean, anything as serious as like sex, or food or just sleep or dancing with the stars is on and we've got to see the next episode of dancing with the stars can't miss dancing with the stars or i can't miss my intramural game pleasures and you look at the desires of this community that james is talking about going back to james now the desires of that community had gotten totally out of whack and the reason was because they were being choked by all the things that the world has to offer and so because of that, since Acts chapter 4, they hadn't really matured at all. I mean, in Luke 8, he says, some of the seeds fall among thorns, get choked out by life's pleasures, by life's worries, by life's riches, and because of that, they don't mature. That's the picture of these people in, in James. And so instead of peace, which we heard that last week at the end of Luke chapter 3, peacemakers, instead of peace defining this body, now you've got this burning warlike tension. Here's what we've got to hear. When we allow the thorns of the world to choke us, we are unable to retain God's word and unable to be changed by God's word. Think about what we've heard already this semester. James 1, 1, the very first week, we saw that the nations are literally at our fingertips right here in Denton. And what we saw, though, is there's really one question that's going to define whether or not we have a big impact here. And it's, these, it's 
two questions, sorry, two questions, and that is, one, how hard are we willing to work? How much are we willing to sacrifice? We saw the whole purpose for James writing this letter is to question their faith, ask, is it really real? If so, look, wake up to the nations around you, address some of the big obvious issues that are in your life, then you'll have a huge impact. The next week, James 1, 2 through 12, we saw we need to work out our faith. Spiritual obesity is what we talked about that week. I don't know if you remember that. But spiritual obesity, it's the picture of being filled and filled and filled with knowledge. Setting like this, Bible studies, whatever. We're getting filled with all this knowledge, but we never work it out. And so we're getting, we're getting full of knowledge, but we're not fit in our faith. I mean, so, I mean, have we taken this stuff seriously yet? I mean, how, how, how many of us are positioning ourselves in such a way to let our faith be tested? The next week, James 1, 13 through 21. So we have to own up to and get rid of the sin in our life. And until then, we're going to be ineffective. We're going to probably see that again here tonight. So looking at that, I mean, are, are we, since then, are we, are you owning up to the sin that's in your life and getting rid of it? Or is it still there just like it was in week three of this study? Week four, James 1, 22 through 27, we need to stop merely listening to the word and, and start doing what it says. Those who only listen are being deceived and might very well be unsaved. I mean, how many have taken that seriously and considered the implications that that has on your life, on my life? James 2, 1 through 13, the most effective way that we can impact the kingdom of God is by waging war with what? Love. I tell you, I really listen good to that one. By waging war with love. Well, where are we at? The next week, James 2, 14 through 26, real faith recognizes how impoverished and fragile our souls really are. It recognizes the magnitude of our mandate or our calling, and it recognizes or real faith is always accompanied by a risky response. And we saw that if that, those three things don't define our faith, then our, our faith may not be real faith. I mean, do we have real faith? Have you asked yourself that question since we listened to God's word? And we could go on and on. Keep going. Last week, workers, watchers, words. Are you a worker or are you a watcher? A lot of you are watchers. We need workers. God makes this promise. He says, look, the harvest is there. That's not from James. But he says the harvest is there. It's plentiful. The workers are just few. If we believe that God's word is true, then, then we're holding on to this promise that, look, the harvest is out there. All we need to do is go work the fields. How many of you have been to the fields since last week? I have a feeling, and I know James has the feeling as he's writing this letter, that his people are being choked out by life's worries, by life's riches and life's pleasures. Because as soon as we get up and leave here, we just whew, brush it off the shoulder and act like we never even heard it before. It's because we start thinking about these other things. I need this. I need this. I want that. I've got to watch that. I've got to be at that. I don't have time for this. And so James, and, and honestly, I'm ready to be done with this book because... His tone is intense the whole way, and I, I feel bad every week coming up here and looking at this, but the reality is, man, we've got to hear this. And listen to what he says next, verse 4. He doesn't change his tone at all. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He says, you've been caught. You know, it's almost like God knows we can't sneak anything behind his back, but it's almost like, you know, he's watching, or maybe James, he's, he's watching, and he's, and he's seeing these people, and he's, he's kind of watching 
you know, their eyes. It's, it's, I mean, imagine like a marriage relationship, okay? And ladies, like, your, your man comes home late, you know, four nights in a row from, from work. And every time you talk to him, it's like he's, his eyes are just glazed over. So you start to wonder, you know? You start to wonder what's really going on. And so, you, you know, you get a little bit crazy and you start to kind of stalk him, you know? And you maybe kind of follow him with your lights off at night, which is very dangerous to do. So you follow him in your car with your lights off at night and you, and you follow him because you, you want to know what's happening. And it's like James gets that same suspicion, or God, even though he already knows, it's, it's like he gets that same suspicion, and he follows us, and he comes and he catches us red-handed, sleeping in bed with the world. Seriously, that's exactly what James is seven, saying, and that's why he says, you're adulterous people. We've been caught in an affair with the world. But look at what he says in verse 5. He goes on, he says, or do you think Scripture says without reason, the NIV does a terrible job of translating this, he says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gave it, or he gives us more grace, and that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Probably a better way to translate that is the New American Standard says, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously, or God jealously, desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Thank God he so passionately loves us. Thank God he's so jealous for us. Thank God he wants us. And, and this isn't like crazy jealous, okay? Like, guys, this isn't the crazy jealous that you're scared your girlfriend's gonna have, you know? And girls, this isn't like bad jealousy that, you're, that your man would have. This is like the good kind of jealousy. Girls, this is the kind of jealousy that you want your future husband to have. He so passionately loves us, and in the midst of our unfaithfulness, he's gone out of his way to fix the problem. So up to this point, here's what James has said. He said, one, you've let life's worries, riches, and pleasures stand in your way, in between you and God's word. You've let life's worries, riches, and pleasures stunt your maturity as a believer. Second, he says this, as a result, whether you realize it or not, you're now being very unfaithful to God. And the third thing he says, thank goodness his grace is bigger than your unfaithfulness. And he says, all of this moving to this point, he says, now it's time to repent. Now it's time to return to him. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, this is what scripture says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes those who are too prideful to take an honest look at themselves and own up to the junk that's in their heart. And the only way that we can be recipients of God's grace is if we humbly own up to our sin. Are you hearing that? Like the only way that we can be recipients of God's grace is if we repent, turn away from our sin. And there's four things that he says, kind of four, I mean, very, he's like, look, I'm going to be very practical with you. So he gives four things. First, he says, submit. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit, like let God be the boss of you. And then he says, resist. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you from you. Ephesians 6.13 says this, therefore put on the full armor of God. What's the purpose of armor? To protect you, right? Protect you from arrows, protect you from, you know, bullets and weapons and whatever. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground or you may be able to resist. Same word. Stand firm then, resist then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in its place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. James says, resist the devil. Don't just let him walk all over you. 
And I'll be honest, when you picture somebody putting armor on, when you picture ourselves putting armor on, sometimes I think we're more worried about keeping that armor nice and shiny than we are really doing battle and really resisting what's going on. I mean, our armor should not be nice and shiny. It should be scuffed up. It should be battered around. There ought to be dents in our armor. It's war with Satan. It's war with the devil. And so he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, come near. It's the third thing he says. Come near to God or draw near to God and he will come near or draw near to you. And then he goes on. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I, I think it's very interesting that he says your hands and your heart. I mean, it's like your outward actions and your inward actions. Purify yourself. Wash it. Clean it. And then the very last thing he says is this. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It seems like It seems like sermons are judged by how entertaining they are. Like an effective sermon, it seems like these days are judged by how entertaining they are. And so like they're judged by how many laughs you get. And I'll just tell you one of the most frustrating things or funny, I guess funny things maybe is, you know, after like teaching and somebody comes up and says, I really enjoyed that. Well, crap. You know, it's like, here he's saying you should grieve, mourn, and wail when you hear God's word. Well, crap, maybe I'm not, you know, doing a good job of proclaiming this if that was enjoyable or entertaining. I'm not saying that God's word isn't enjoyable, but you, you kind of get my gist. It seems like sermons and, and preachers are judged by the laughs, but sermons shouldn't be judged by laughs, but by repentance. Because the goal of preaching is repentance. The goal of preaching is transformation. True repentance is always paired with grieving. And that's why James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So, why is all this important, what James is saying? I want you to see this. Luke chapter 13, we're going to flip to three different verses here. Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Let me read that again. He says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Two verses later, verse 5, he says, I tell you, again, he says, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You will die. And he says, you too will all perish. He's not talking about if you don't repent in the band, you too is going to all die. He's talking about like you. Sorry, I don't know where that came from either. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Why is this important? First reason it is important is this. Salvation and eternal life apart from repentance does not exist. Salvation and eternal life apart from repentance does not exist. So that means, now, now understand like, there's a point where you, where you become a Christian or you, you, you become part of God's family. You become a saved child of God, however you want to phrase it. 
when his spirit enters into you. But that cannot happen apart from repentance. And so if that's not something that's happened for you yet, then just know that salvation and eternal life does not exist apart from repentance. And then Acts chapter 2, back it up a little bit, verse 37. Peter's just preached to thousands and thousands of people. And listen to what happens. When the people heard this, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? What do we do do now that we've heard the gospel, we've heard this for the first time, and and our hearts are being like messed with, burning now, like we've got to respond now for the first time. And here's Peter's response, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not just for those people there that day. It's for everybody else, including us. So the promise, the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. But then, verse 40 and 41, this is where I think it gets cool. He says, with many other words, he warned them and and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We've been praying that we would have significant impact here in Denton. We've been praying that we would have significant impact in the world. What we've got to see is a significant impact does not happen apart from repentance. Revivals are rooted in repentance. All of them are rooted in repentance. And so I asked that question at the beginning, okay, so we sing, if God is for us, who can stand against us? And we just assume, even though we, we ignore the if, we just assume that's true. God is for us, right? Well, it says right here, God opposes the proud. And it takes humility to repent. That's why he says he gives grace to those who are humble. God stands against the proud. He he stands opposed to the proud. In other words, he stands opposed to the unrepentant. Therefore, God stands opposed to us if we don't repent. And here's what that means, and here's why why that's significant. As we pray, as we pray that we would have a significant impact here in Denton and throughout the world, like, we need to understand that if we sit here unrepentant in our hearts, then God is not for us. And if you think I'm preaching heresy, well, let me tell you this. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 4. I was supposed to preach on this a couple Sundays ago, and I didn't. But 1 Samuel chapter 4, you see the Israelites. They go out to battle against the Philistines, and they lose once. And they come back, and they think, well, what the heck happened? So they go back to battle again. Actually, before they go back to battle again, they go and they get God. The, they get the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God. It's like, oh, we forgot God, so let's go get him. So they bring God into the camp. And everybody starts, you know, hooting and holler, raising the roof because God's in the camp now. And they know that if God is for them, who can be against them, right? And even the Philistines freaked out because they had heard about this God. So now that they have God in the camp, God's for them. Who can be against them? If God's for you, who can be against you? Now they go out to battle again. And this time they get slaughtered even worse. And the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, gets stolen and taken by the Philistines. Why? Because God wasn't for them in that moment. Even though they were God's children... God wasn't for them in that moment. And what you see later on is because they had some idols that they needed to get rid of. You mean you fast forward into today, fast forward into James' era, it's because they had been choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And they had not repented from, from 
And so tonight, that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, the band's going to come up here, or the guys are going to come up here and play, and we're going to sing, we're going to worship some more, uh, but, but we've got to have a time of repentance. I've got to have a time of repentance. And so, like, as we close this out tonight, I, my prayer is that as we sit here, stand here, whatever, um, that God would enable you, enable me, to really do some hardcore introspection or looking or whatever. I don't even know if that's a word, but looking into our hearts. Like, we need to do some serious looking into our hearts and, and ask, what is there, God, that doesn't need to be there? And some of you already know. It's obvious. But we've got to ask the question, okay, what needs to go? And, and we need to repent of it. We need to own up to it and get rid of it. Until we do that, it's going to be really hard to have a big impact anywhere. So y'all stand and uh, let me pray for us. God, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity tonight to study your word. And, and God, I just pray that anything that could get in the way of us uh, being honest with ourselves, anything that could get in the way of us being distracted or, or, or being focused here, Lord, I pray that you would remove that. And Father, I, I, I just pray that you would help us to come before you and repent. I mean, if this, if we read this and that doesn't happen, then we've wasted an hour, hour and a half. Um, we've wasted a lot of time. And then we're wasting all the time we go from here forward, we're wasting because uh, I think your word is clear. God opposes those who are proud and unrepentant in their hearts. And so, Father, I pray, um, I pray this is a time of honesty, a time of honest repentance. I pray that in Jesus' name.
Should we? 
Of your 